This presentation is based on the work of my Geography MSc dissertation completed last summer for the University College London. It began with my interest in the conflicting accounts of urban cycling with which we are all familiar. Broadly speaking, condemnation versus recommendation. Sensationalized accounts of cycling and cyclists as deviant versus the rationalized promotion of cycling because it's good for you, and in this case, good for London. Appealing to emotion versus appealing to reason. Policy recommendations, media representations, and public perceptions. Combined, it all seems a bit confusing, and with the potential to influence the effectiveness of efforts to promote cycling in London. I was also interested in how these conflicting representations relate to conflict itself, emotion, and the daily journey and specifically, notions of cycling rage. Therefore, the study is concerned with motion, promotion, and emotion, the ways in which cycling is being communicated, perceived, and experienced every day in London. I will begin by giving a brief overview of my three main themes of background interest before presenting my own methodology and findings. They say cycle journeys in London have increased in recent years. But how to explain the shift? Of course that depends who is asked, but many official explanations tend to focus on rational variables, such as this one in last July's Observer. Petrol prices, the 7-7 attacks, an increasing awareness of environmental issues, the congestion charge, the cycle to work schemes, erratic public transport, the Tour de France visiting the UK, gold medals won by British cyclists at the Beijing Olympics, concerns over swine flu, and then there are people who just want some exercise. In comparison, if we think back, the original cycling boom of the 1890s could of course also be explained so rationally the safety bicycle offering a new mode of transportation, and a fast one at that. And yet, early bicycle promotion frequently appealed to the emotional and embodied thrill of the bicycle's new technology. Freedom, speed, control, an opportunity to embrace or perhaps escape urban living. In other words, the promotion of cycling's emotions how the aesthetic dimensions of the cycling experience were used to encourage people to start, start cycling, and how that compares with efforts to get more people cycling today. Although it's true in some ways I'm comparing apples to oranges, yesteryear's advertising of bicycles to today's advertising of cycling. However, I still believe there's value in considering the strikingly different representations employed for a common goal to get more people on bikes. In any case, then and now, positively and negatively, it could be said that cyclists have long been represented as outsiders, both by themselves and by others. Samuel Becker considers the double-barreled meaning of the term outsider in his sociological study of deviance. 
According to Becker, when a rule is enforced, the person who is supposed to have broken it may be seen as a special kind of person, one who cannot be trusted to live by the rules agreed on by the group. He is regarded as an outsider. This first common sense assumption of deviance focuses, focuses exclusively on a person's behavior, narrowly locating all agency and responsibility in humans, ignoring the non-human agency of, for example, pavements, curbs, traffic lights, bollards, which determine human behavior, or, according to this view, determine whether or not that behavior is deviant. However, the person who is thus labeled an outsider may have a different view on the matter. The rule breaker may feel his judges are outsiders. This may be the case, for example, if the so-called deviant is a part of a social group who did not have political power when the rules were written. In the context of cycling, the Guardian's Matt Seaton suggests that civil servants imposed roads and road rules that designed cyclists out of the system so that now cyclists have acquired a tremendous sense of self-righteous entitlement even to behave badly. Furthermore, as we all know, rules apply to some people more than others, and London cyclists, not quite considered legitimate road users, but expected to behave legitimately, generate anger, bringing me to my third theme of interest, road rage. As is a basis for studying emotion, Jack Katz chose road rage and identified two conditions for becoming pissed, what he calls pissed off when driving. The first is asymmetrical interaction. Relatively protected inside their vehicle, drivers and passengers visually judge human behavior on the outside, including that of cyclists, cycling outsiders. But do cyclists feel seen, heard, do they have a voice? Katz argues that road users who appear blind or deaf to another's concerns asymmetrically render the other invisible or dumb, stimulating rage. The second condition Katz identifies for becoming pissed off is being cut up by other mobility space users, sharply contrasting with connection, continuation, and flow. He describes the sensation felt by drivers Sudden confinement generating anger as one must fall out of the flow by hitting the brake or at least lifting off the accelerator. In the process, physically pulling oneself out of a previously tacit intertwining of body and machine. And if drivers are susceptible to enraging amputation and asymmetrical vulnerability, what may be said of hyper alert minority cyclists who risk severe injury or death at even the slightest miscalculation? Katz's research is useful, not least in the way it, like Becker's analysis of deviance, insists we consider the other's perspective in order to understand how emotions work. And yet, Katz only considers one perspective, driver behavior. His analysis of road rage doesn't consider other road users, those outside the car, such as cyclists. Similarly, in focusing exclusively on human behavior, Katz overlooks the role of non-human factors, such as the design of urban mobility space. With these points in mind, I will now move on to my own investigation of cycling rage. Similar to the technique employed by Katz 
whose participants were asked to recount one or more experiences of becoming pissed off while driving. I conducted one-to-one -one interviews based on an introductory request for participants to describe what does cycling rage mean to you. This set the stage for the general topic of discussion and encouraged personal anecdotes. I spoke with 28 cyclists, drivers, those who cycle and drive, as well as those who neither cycle nor drive, in order to develop meanings of the central research question, what conditions stimulate emotion related to cycling in London? Once the participants' personal concept of cycling rage was established, conversations tended to focus around several themes. Without exception, all participants had quite a lot to say about London's cycling infrastructure, namely the ways in which it is perceived to disadvantage cycling. Broadly speaking, as Douglas put it, cycle lanes just stop. In many places, there's not proper indication. You don't know where you're going. Angles and corners aren't designed correctly. Obviously, the cycle paths in the parks are too narrow. There's no way from South London to Soho that's safe or nice. There are whole areas of the central London route map that don't have a suggested cycle route. I realize it's the middle of London, so you can't expect it to be perfect, but still, it's like they copy patterns of existing crap. Like, there's no room for bold or imaginative planning. There's no bold strategies, just stupid little things. It's so dysfunctional. That infrastructure can be enraging isn't altogether surprising, and I'm not going to elaborate on the design flaws participants mentioned. There are, however, several points which I believe need to be made in relation to infrastructure and rage. Firstly, several participants connected infrastructure with injustice, citing how the cyclist's perspective is systematically and asymmetrically not taken into account. Like Diane, it does make me mad quite often that the middle of London is so bad for cyclists. That's just inconsiderate planning and injustice. It would make people feel so much more empowered and heard. It's a half-hearted effort. It's like, oh, there's a cycle lane with no sort of concept. We're really pushed out of the way. And Al, the bus driver and cyclist. I have to push, assert myself to get through traffic. I have to raise my voice more than a person in a car or lorry just to be heard. People think we're hostile and aggressive when we're just trying to survive. Cyclists are not recognized on the road, and that's wrong. By way of contrast, criticism of London's green spaces was also illuminating. In other words, there appeared to be a contradiction between what cyclists perceive as cycling unfriendliness in these otherwise friendly places, off-road, away from cars and crowds, and therefore perhaps of naturally higher cycling expectations, but with corresponding grounds for disappointment. As one Royal Parks official told me, cycling is probably the most emotive subject we have in Hyde Park. Donna said, years ago I was stopped for cycling on one of the diagonal paths in Hyde Park. I knew cycling wasn't allowed there, but no one was around. It would be sensible to cycle in the diagonal through the park. It's a big place and it would get people off the road. It's just ridiculous in 2009 that there's not that route in Hyde Park. Douglas, speaking about Regent's Park Canal. My advice, don't cycle the canal. In fact, the canal towpath is the most unpleasant ride I've ever experienced in London. Kids threw bottles at us and pedestrians joked about pushing cyclists into the canal. 
Infrastructure is therefore enraging in the way cyclists must make do with it physically. But what about politically? It could be said that such a system is also enraging in the way it works towards cyclists' politi political disadvantage by discouraging would-be cyclists from joining their ranks, perhaps hindering London's so-called cycling revolution. But then again, could this rage fuel the revolution? One need only think of the public protest which took place in Copenhagen in the 70s, an outlet of rage which helped to ignite system change there, as expressed by two non-cyclists. There are some places where I think, why don't they add a cycle lane here? There are loads of places where there could be a cycle lane and there just aren't. The way it is now, you've got your little cycle lanes and then the end, a little cycle lane and then poof, they disappear just when you need it most. Like leading up to Hammersmith Broadway, the different roads probably have cycle lanes, but what about the roundabout then? What about the roundabout itself? What then? Comments such as these illustrate how infrastructure, by hindering non-cyclists from cycling, ensures cycling remains a minority outsider activity, in turn, and rather ironically, increasing the likelihood that cycling is judged exclusively by cyclist behavior, as opposed to the non-human factors which influence their behavior. In other words, a vicious cycle. This was something Diane recognized perfectly well when she said, there's a bit they've designed so badly, it cuts the cycle route right off. They've put the cycle bit down a hill, and to follow it, you have to make this funny, twisty, turny bit around bollards. Downhill and weaving around bollards is just no consideration. I won't take the twisty, turny bit, and so I'm in the road with the cars, and I sense or feel that drivers are thinking, stupid cyclist, why doesn't she get on the cycle path? In addition to physically and politically enraging, London's cycling infrastructure may even enrage promotionally. That is, attempts to portray cycling in London as a rational transport choice, but which do not acknowledge the daily hardships faced by those cycling in the city are probably fooling no one. Rather, they risk labeling their source as an incompetent outsider. Several participants cited such promotional efforts as out of touch, responding to them with resentment, cynicism, skepticism, and a lack of confidence in political will. Several specifically mentioned Transport for London's efforts to promote cycling, and in doing so, illustrated the extent to which these messages have the potential to backfire, as if by cycling they'd be doing TFL an unearned favor. Instead of trying to convince us all to cycle in one of the busiest cities in the world, they should be fixing public transport. The only reason they're promoting cycling is for the Olympic tourists to avoid a transport, public transport crash. Similarly, several participants specifically referenced TFL's Catch Up With The Bicycle campaign, which although visually appealing to emotion, was seen as unreasonable and patronizing. I mean, wind blowing through your hair? What, London wind? Dirty, smoggy, no thanks. I guess I just picture the whole experience as stressful. It's not me. I'd have to adopt who I am, adapt who I am to the bike. I don't picture cycling here as tra-la-la. I imagine the stress of parking, lots, rain, sweat, my hair every, everywhere. Rightly or wrongly, I picture a stressful experience. I'd rather saunter down into the tube under some stranger's armpit than easily emerge as me again. 
Others pointed out what TFL seems hesitant to advertise. Cycling is often faster than public transport and offers freedom from its unreliability. In fact, speed was the most cited rash rational reason anyone gave for cycling. None of the participants mentioned the environment, money, or health. Cycling saves me lots of time. Before, it took me an hour and 15 minutes to get to work. I'm not dependent on unreliable public transport, said Al, the bus driver. Cycling can be really freeing. You're continuously moving, going over bridges, and cycling by London's land landmarks is a fantastic feeling. No one cycles for environmental reasons. I certainly don't cycle for that. Of course, I'm aware of the benefit, but personally, it's just a great way to get about, the freedom, the independence. Also, Robert, who, when I spoke with him, was forced to temporarily give up his bike due to back problems. He explained, every time I'm on a train, I'm wistful for my bike. After cycling every day, now whenever I'm on the tube, it feels just dreadful. Now I guess I could say I have cycle rage because I'm deprived of my bike. I'm feeling that now, quietly raging. I almost can't look at other cyclists. They move so freely and easily. I pang for something that's been lost. I would be seething to become a part of that awful thing, the two. When you've been on the other side, the good life, wind in your sails, it's just inhumane, obscene. All that said, it would seem reasonable to ask, with all the rage, why on earth is cycling in London all the rage? As some of these last comments touched on, however, there is another side to the story. Try it, and you will say, the half has never been told. Bringing me to my last point about the expressed shortcomings of London's cycling infrastructure, that despite it and its associated tales of rage, all the cyclists express adulation. The thrill of whizzing past traffic, being in control, cherishing freedom, living in urban adventure. For that matter, several of the pedestrians and drivers who rage against cycling in London cited other times and places enjoyed by bike. Diane conveyed it best. I wonder if I just like the adventure of having all my wits about me. Plus, it's just nice to be outside. I'm not a fair weather cyclist. The other day I got soaked. When I got soaked, I cycled through puddles just because I could. I would find it hard not to cycle every day. It keeps me sane, even though I find it maddening sometimes. You, ha you have to have the moves. People say to me, cycling in London, are you crazy? A bit of me enjoys, enjoys the adventure. I love my bike. I couldn't live without it. So, although rationally speaking, our time-space narratives have radically changed since the 1890s, the emotional appeal, appeal of cycling seems to have remained fundamentally the same. It's liberating, exhilarating, and still a fast way to move about the city suggesting that there may be space for promotional messages which are more real but with no less appeal.